Um, the next four weeks, we're going to study something that you might find uh, unique. I don't know. Um, but I think it's, it is something we have to study, and I think it's something that our church has been growing in uh, for 10 years <laughs> um, and, and really is something that we've, we've really kind of uh, been driving at, and one of the things that we're doing is having this prayer conference that Rachel is organizing, uh, and it has a lot to do with that stuff. So I thought we would study some things in in the line of prayer as we move up to that conference. Um, not that I'm like revealing what they're gonna to to say. Um, Rachel was joking with me last night. It's very hard to nail down Bruce Latchoff. You know, Bruce, this is true on what he's gonna say. He's kind of like kind of like nailing jello to a wall. But um, he's a great, he, he'll be great, but we just don't know what he's going to say. But we do trust him. Um, and I, I, it's, so it, it, I, I'm excited about the next four weeks, but I'm, I, I, as I read my sermons, I'm thinking, what are they going to think about this? So um, just, just uh, keep an open mind and we'll, we'll go forward and we'll see, we'll see what God says to us. So I prayed this morning as I was worshiping that his voice would reign in your ears and that anything that is of Jason that doesn't need to be said would just kind of go in one ear and out the other, that you would only hear what God wants us, wants us to hear, myself included in that prayer. Acts 19, 11 through 22 says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons, and I, I uh, debated whether or not I should call this series handkerchiefs and aprons, but I had already made up my slide, and I'm like, I'm too lazy to change it. But <laughs> So handkerchiefs and aprons that, that had touched him were taken to the sick, and the illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Oh, so good. <laughs> we'll get through this sermon pretty quick. Um, um, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Now, let me just stop right there and notice how he said they said that. In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So this reveals right away they do not have a relational connection with the Lord at all. And I, that is something that God has been pressing on my heart lately as I study the scriptures in my own quiet times. Just the relational connection to God, the relational connection to Jesus, and, and, and the power and the, the, the beauty that comes out of that, right? And so these guys don't have that, Right? Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them. This is great. Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That must have been embarrassing. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks, living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. By the way, I've been a part of those meetings. I remember very vividly one time uh, with one of my church planters in um, Krui, up in the north part of the uh, the province of Lampung, uh, burning... um, 
some old amulets and things like that, the, that the witch doctors had given to these people that had just come to know the Lord. And just, it was just a really good, good experience. But this is what's happening. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, a lot of money. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So these guys are, I mean, you know where, you, where your money goes, where your mouth, you know, where your heart is, right? Like they're putting, they're putting it on the line. Now, after this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. And after I, after I had been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. And he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to, Erastus, to, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. So there's healing, there's demonic possession, there's casting out, there's uh, all this stuff going on. We have this allusion to these guys that don't have a, a relational connect, connection to the Lord and they make some mistakes and, and um, they pay for it a little bit. And then we have Paul who is you know, relationally connected to the Lord. He knows Jesus, he's walking with Jesus and suddenly, and, and Paul seems to be able to cure and, and pray for people and see healing happen and he is in, in a sense protected by the Lord in that relationship as he does it. Now we're not going to go through this passage verse by verse. We're not going to pick it apart, but we are going to use the concepts uh, in these verses as a springboard to talk about an, uh, an issue that I think is vital to, the, to Christian formation. Um, an issue somewhat confusing for for us with a secular, you know, Western worldview largely that we're coming out of, and we're trying to make our hearts and minds bend to to Christ and and take on his his uh, view of the world, um, and 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 it's an issue that sets the Christian faith apart from all the rest. It really does. Um, If you'd like to read something, there's a a book by Ken Blue called Authority to Heal. Much of his thinking and words go into these sermons. But um, for the next few weeks, we're going to use the concepts in this certain passage to explore healing, sickness and healing and things like that. And the interesting thing was that about three or four people texted this morning and said, I'm sick, I can't make it. And I'm like, well, I better pray for them. So, um, but yeah, it was kind of interesting, but. So we're going to center around basically three questions. Does God care about our soul, but not about our body? Good question, right? Does God care about our soul, but not about our body? And if you want to read a really good book on that, there's a book back there called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. And it's just, it's about that, how we've divorced um, our the the physical world from our from the spiritual world and and so it doesn't matter really and this is really old Gnostic thought and um, it's really what Francis Schaeffer wrote about way back when um, but does God care about our soul but not about our body um, second question is is sickness uh, a form of suffering to be endured just to be endured. And are we to accept sickness as a testing or a refining blessing from God? And you may or may not ever have thought about these questions, but other people in the Christian faith have, and we as a body need to uh, you know, go where the Lord is taking us together. And sometimes our theology needs healing, right? Our own thinking can, uh, about God can sort of hold us back from understanding and experiencing the power and the abundant life that he wants for us. And what's so the question really is, what sets our message apart and validates it from all the rest out there? 
do we really have power? Right? And obviously, what sets us apart, there are some very big differences in our theology as compared to other religions or other spiritualities out there. The crucified, resurrected Christ, you know, is unique to the Christian faith, obviously. Uh, Christianity is unique in the, its message, its gospel message of grace, that you're saved by grace through faith and not works of your own and all that kind of stuff. That is all very clear, and we preach that pretty strongly, I think, here at 6-8. You may disagree, but I think I do a pretty good job. You know. um, but, you know, those things are very unique to us, right? But what else validates our message? What shows it to have transforming power over all the others, right? What it really does? Ken Blue, in his book, pastor to, you know, said he pastored a church in a very needy area, and he was on, he was uh, one church in that area among many uh, ministries, all kinds of different types of ministries in that area, and they all prayed and they all fasted and they all you know preached their messages, but they were all largely ineffective. And he asked himself, um, what set them apart? What made them different? And this is what he writes. He says, a unique difficulty we faced on our mission field in their community, right, was that, that we were just one of literally dozens of religious groups there. And all of these groups preached the, vir- the virtues of their various gurus and saviors. From the general community's point of view, little separated us from them. While we could point to our holy scriptures, our prophets, our conversion experience, our community of love, acceptance, and social responsibility, so could they. When we sat down with leaders from these other groups to discuss truth questions and the rational support of our beliefs, we won the day convincingly, right? I'm pretty confident that if I sat down with anybody of another religion, I could pretty much state my case and, and, and I believe that Christianity makes much more sense than anything or makes sense and nothing else does, to, to be honest with you. That's not, like, I'm not being a jerk when I say that. I'm just saying it is, it is an axiom, a truth. Um, but this seemed not, not to matter, he says. We did everything humanly possible to define our distance from the other groups in order to present the unique saving gospel of Jesus Christ, but we lacked, as the Luzane, and if I pronounce that correctly, Committee for Evangelism pointed out, signs to validate our evangelism. Signs to validate our evangelism. Now, let me put out a little caveat here. I am not one to go to extremes. I want to be the, in the radical, like what the vineyard calls the radical middle. I think Jesus is in the radical middle on all situations, right? He's not on the extremes, in, and we'll talk about this a little bit in a few minutes, but he's not on the extremes. So I'm not advocating some extreme view of anything, of, of healing and sickness and things like that. But I am trying to get us to understand, I think, what the scriptures say about it. So, And we should notice that when Jesus sent people out to preach the kingdom of God, um, you know, to, to go out and share the message, the, the truth message of the gospel, he also commanded them to heal the sick and to drive out demons. He did, didn't he? We, we, we noticed that. Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 10, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 10, and Mark chapter 6, he sent them out and he said, go and preach the message. But he also said, heal people and cast out demonic activity therefore logic would tell us that if if 
if we do one of those things, but we ignore the other ones, we're not really running on all cylinders. And you know what a car is like when it doesn't run on all cylinders. When one cylinder is damaged, when your spark plug's not sparking on one cylinder, your, your, your engine's rough or it loses power. It doesn't give you as much. You know, you can't come off the line and beat the guy next to you, which is always my goal when I'm at a red light. Um, that's why I have so many tickets. But, uh, you know, it's just not... It's not a good thing, right? And the church likewise, I believe, loses power when we ignore or we gloss over these issues of power and healing. The vineyard is actually one that does not gloss over it. And that's why we talk about it here. But why do we do that? Why do we ignore these things? Why aren't we comfortable in the area of healing? Why do we get all tied up in knots when we, when we want to pray for somebody that's, that's sick or anything like that? Why do we get all tied up in knots uh, in, the, in the issues of demonic activity? Somebody recently in this church told me that they had been through a prayer uh, experience where something was driven out of them. I hear those things quite often, by the way. And I do believe, and I, these are people that I trust, and I do believe they are real, right? Many of us have come from backgrounds which may talk little of the Holy Spirit. That was kind of my upbringing in my church, church upbringing, right? I, I, they, we didn't really talk about the Holy Spirit, let alone healing. We never had a healing service. We never prayed for you know, healing other than, Lord, guide the doctor's hands, you know, that kind of a prayer, you know? Uh, you know, I, I'm not being I'm not being overly critical. I was like that. I thought like that, right? Uh, others of us have come from backgrounds which may have put too much emphasis, right, on such things, and 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 we've not, you know, and, and we've not put emphasis on other things where we should. Either way, we wouldn't be running on all cylinders. So we can all go to extremes, and we really do want to be where Jesus is in the middle, not on extremes. Here's an ancient prayer to consider. It says. From cowardice, which shrinks from new truth. From laziness, which is content with half-truth. From arrogance, which thinks it knows all truth. O God of truth, deliver us. That's worth a second read, right? From cowardice, which shrinks from new truth. From laziness, which is content with half-truth. From arrogance, which thinks it knows all truth. We just talked about humility for the last four weeks, five weeks. Oh, God of truth, deliver us. Right? Amen. We are in danger in our relationship with God, with the living God, if we think that we know it all, if, if we avoid new revelations from the Lord, you know, in His Scriptures or, you know, what He's saying to us in, in, in our body of Christ and out here and all that kind of stuff, or we become content with only part of the story, running on three cylinders instead of four or five cylinders instead of six. Whatever car you have, right? So what's different about the gospel message than all the others out there? And I would put forth to you that we serve a living, active God who cares about and intercedes in the physical nature of the universe. That God heals and God delivers. Why it doesn't always happen, I don't know. That's not my business. But... I do believe he does. And sometimes our theology of God is insufficient or faulty, either in theory or in practice. Our theology needs healing sometimes. We want to experience these, 
these issues. We want to walk out in faith. We want to preach the kingdom of God in truth rightly, but we also want to see, we want to be brave to walk in and pray for healing and, and, and confront um, demonic activity with power that is available to us in the Holy Spirit. And there are four theological roadblocks which we need to address. Firstly, sanctification through sickness. Secondly, what we would call divine determinism. Thirdly, what we would call the faith formula. And fourthly, what we will call the secular worldview. And uh, let's, we're going to walk through those four views over the next four weeks. So we're going to begin today with the idea that of sanctification through sickness. Like that sickness is somehow something that makes us better. And people have had this view in the church, and some people still hold it, right? And you might even hold it, and you may not even realize that you hold it, right? Francis McNutt explains this well. He says, when we say that God sends sickness or asks us to endure it, we're creating for many, many people an image of God that they must eventually reject. What human mother or father would choose cancer for their daughter in order to tame her pride? Those preachers and chaplains who try to comfort the sick by telling them to accept their illness as a blessing sent from God are giving an immediate consolation, but at what an ultimate cost. In a sense, we unwittingly treat God as something like a pagan deity placated by human sacrifice. You know, our thinking is influenced by history, and I don't think we realize how much so, you know, you know when we're just going throughout life, Right? The idea of sanctification through sickness can be traced all the way back to the persecution of the church under Rome in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Early Christians, rightly so, uh, found dignity and found purpose in suffering. Right? You remember Rome was against Christians, you know, chuck them through the lions and stuff like that. You know, there was a lot of suffering going on at that time. And they learned uh, to value it as something which built up their faith and purified the church, basically. Through suffering, they rejoiced, right? They, like, like the scriptures call us to in suffering. But, but others who were not really truly walking with the Lord left the faith, sort of addition by subtraction. Right? Tertullian um, declared the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. True. Suffering became so valued, though, that there arose a sort of like cult of martyrdom in the church between the years of uh, AD 100 to 300, right? And, and, and in a sense, a good thing, uh, you know, this suffering that people were embracing was perverted and became the status symbol of the church. And three classes arose in the church. Number one, outcasts who compromised to avoid suffering. Uh, The majority of people who didn't suffer much and just kind of went about their life. And then you had the confessors, right? Who were imprisoned, they were martyred for their faith, and they were what we would look at as, oh, they're the super Christians, right? Wow. But under Constantine, if you remember, Constantine became a Christian argument. You know, people can argue that. But but at least in name, he became a Christian and persecution of the church halted, right? Christianity was elevated in its status. It was guarded in its status from that point on. And Christians became the privileged class. Suddenly they had first world problems instead of third world problems, so to speak, right? 
And this caused two things in the church. Number one, its moral and its spiritual standards dropped. Have you ever noticed that when you're, you're fat and happy that you, you just kind of don't? Like things just seep into your life that shouldn't be there, right? It's like when you're facing something hard, you do grow, right? Um, so it's moral and spiritual standards drops, and without persecution, they lack the means to attain to martyrdom or this confessor status that they valued so so highly. They were sort of addicted to it. And how did they become a super Christian now without outside persecution? And the answer to that was was that some fled to the desert. They went out to the desert and they practiced asceticism. And they, they, they would deny the body certain pla- pleasures. They would punish the body. They, w- they would deny it pleasures or needs and things like that in order to build up the spiritual character of a person. So the idea was uh, without state-sponsored persecution, they had to persecute themselves, so to speak. And they practiced prolonged fasting. Now, there's nothing wrong, and I don't think there's anything abusive of doing fasting well, I think we're called to do that, but prolonged drug out fasting where, you know, you're really hurting your body is not something I think the scriptures really call us to, but they practice prolonged fasting. They practice flogging. They, uh, they sat on top of columns. It was kind of strange, like 30 feet in the air or something like that. They would sit on a little column, um, sleep deprivation. They couldn't sleep, exposure to the elements and all this other kind of stuff. And naturally, sickness developed in people, which became, for some, synonymous with suffering. So sickness was the new way to martyrdom. It was the new confessor status in some ways. And this was compounded in the third and fourth centuries by Greek philosophy, Gnosticism, which believed that the material universe, the body, everything physical out there was evil. Everything's evil. But only spiritual things are good. By the way, that is still what we deal with in America, very much so, because we are very Gnostic in our thinking. Therefore, you know, because of all this, anything which punished the body was seen as a strong, good thing, and, and, and it was a welcome spiritual practice. Uh, I, there, there's, there, you know, there, there have been, you know, monks and people like that who have like worn like these spike things on their legs or on their arms or whatever, like underneath their robes, you would never know they're doing it and all that kind of stuff. They're punishing the body, right? Um, and this thinking greatly influenced and fertilized the thinking of the new martyrs, the, the ascetics, right? And with sickness becoming this new form of, of, of persecu- persecution and seen as valued, prayer for sickness became less important. And the interpretation of passages in the scriptures on physical healing began to change. And that's really important. They were now seen not as addressing physical healing, but in terms of healing the soul. In the 16th century, the Church of England in the Office of Visitation wrote this. It says, this is like older English, right? Wherefore whatsoever, (laughs) wherefore whatsoever your sickness is, in other words, whatever sickness you got, know you certainly, be assured of it, that it is God's visitation. It's God that God has brought it on you. That your faith may be found in the day of the Lord laudable, glorious, and honorable. In other words, to build up your faith. Or else it be sent unto you to correct and amend in you whatsoever doth offend the eyes of your heavenly Father. So you're doing something wrong. God makes you sick. 
to make you corrected, right? Now, God was viewed, at this point, God's viewed as the one bringing the sickness on a person, right? And, and you were to endure it as a good Christian, you, as suffering. You weren't really to seek healing in it. You were just supposed to endure it. It was God's visitation. He brought it on you. So you're sick, hey, you know, you must have done something wrong or whatever. And we still have churches these days that teach these things. You were just to, you know, you, you were just to pray and to realize you must have some reason for it. There must be some reason for it. Maybe it was disciplinary in your life, right? But the, here's the thing is when I discipline my children, which I very rarely have to do, they're such wonderful children, I clearly state why I'm doing it, right? I, I clearly state, if, if not, I'd be raised, raising like sort of like frightened, traumatized, like flinching children all the time, you know, they'd be like, I can't be capricious in my, my, uh, my punishment of my children. That wouldn't be good to punish without clarity to, to, or, or without end. That would just be evil of me as a father. And I'd be, it, it, it in no way would educate them in what is good for them. Right. It wouldn't, it wouldn't serve its purpose. You know, such unclear and unfair, Discipline would cause my kids to think their own father cruel and to resent me. So has our, uh, has our, has, has our fear of new truth or laziness and half-truth or our pride in thinking that we know all truth made us to resent God? Made us to have a roadblock with Him? How many times do we get angry uh, with him for a sickness because deep down we think in some way he, he's rejoicing in making us sick, that he's doing it and he's unwilling to give us, you know, to, to give us uh, healing for some reason, right? Or he's unwilling to give us a reason why he's made us sick. Think about it. We do get angry with God about these things. It's true. Sickness is sometimes sent on God's people by God for the purpose of correction. I just threw everything out I just said, right? I didn't. I don't think I did. Um, it is true. Sickness is sometimes is sent on God's people by God for the purpose of correction. However, it's, it's rare and it is not normative in the Scriptures, right? And, and the reason it, it seems always clear as to why it's happening and there's always this promise of healing when the behavior is finally amended. Paul in Acts 9 was struck blind, which proved integral to his salvation and was later healed. In 1 Corinthians 11, sickness and death was visited on the Corinthian church, if you remember that story. It was a remedial punishment for their grave, very grave sin. They were doing some pretty crazy stuff. And when they had stopped sinning against the Lord's Supper, there was a promise of healing. And we must remember that their choices brought this on themselves. Their choices brought this on themselves. It wasn't God's pleasure in it. And in, the, in, the, in this case, the sickness was to be viewed as nothing more but a strong encouragement to stop sinning, and it was educational. They were doing some horrible things that were damaging the name of the Lord and damaging each other and damaging the community around them. You know, some may teach that sickness is a cross-bearing endeavor, sounding really pious, really spiritual, right? However, cross-bearing in the Scriptures is always voluntary. It is always active. It is never passive. Matthew chapter 16, Luke chapter 9. Sickness is neither voluntary nor active. It it, it is always passive. I mean, who, who sets out to get sick, right? Oh, I really want a cold. 
No, I don't want a cold, right? Some teach that it's a test sent from God. However, tests are only valid, as I said earlier, if you learn the reason for the test and whether it's been passed or failed, right? But rarely does the person teaching sickness as a test can, test can or do or does uh, explain to the sick person what the test is for and if they've actually passed it or not. Of course, we know God uses all things uh, for the good of his children. We know that. Romans 8, 28. But, but with that, we do not deny. He can use uh, you know, anything in my life for his good. But it doesn't say that we should receive sickness passively. It's not, that sickness is a part of the fall. It doesn't say that we should receive sickness passively as if it's God's sadistic will upon humankind. Nor should we pursue it as some valid form of suffering as they did in the early church. We should always fight against it by the means that Christ gave to his people. We should always pray against it, pray for healing. We must realize suffering and sickness in New Testament terminology are two separate things. The English kind of lumps them together in, in, in in one category quite often, which is unfortunate. It is really unfortunate. Only once does the New Testament refer to a sickness which some say was epilepsy in Matthew 17, 15 as suffering. But in that case, the the sickness is ascribed to demonic activity. And in Mark 5, 26, the woman's suffering isn't ascribed to her sickness, but to her treatment under bad physicians, right? It's like in Indonesia, we, people would go see the witch doctor and they, man, they make them do the craziest stuff. And it was suffering under the hands of these guys. Um, in the New Testament, we're told suffering has value, but we are never told the same thing about sickness. In James 1-2, we're told to consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. But in James five fourteen and 15, it says that if any of you is sick, he should call the elders to pray, and, in the, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The New Testament teaches us to endure suffering, but always teaches us to to pursue healing in sickness. Jesus never viewed sickness as anything but bad and never dealt with it in any way but to heal it. Some would claim Paul's thorn in the flesh, if you remember that, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, was a sickness. But that's unclear. And, you know, to justify that claim in light of all the other, you know, evidence in the New Testament on this issue, it would be very formidable. I mean, you, could, you really couldn't do it. If we look at the term thorn in the side in, in the terminology of the Old Testament scriptures, we find out it, it always refers to harassment and persecution with Israel's neighbors. We have Numbers 33, Joshua 23, Ezekiel chapter 28. And it's always about this, this harassment and this persecution from their neighbors. So the Old Testament term, thorn in the flesh, refers to persecution and not sickness. Paul, an educated theologian, would have known that using that term. And the context of Paul speaking in 2 Corinthians 12 uh, uh, has to be seen in light uh, 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 of the previous two chapters where he speaks of being persecuted by false prophets and political and religious authorities. So for Paul, a thorn in the, in the flesh is akin to our modern expression of a pain in the neck. 
You're, you know, it's not, it's not anything like a sickness. In conclusion, let's just wrap this up. Sometimes, number one, our theolo- theology must be healed before our bodies can. We must realize we don't have a God who rejoices in making people sick. That we don't have a sadistic God. He's a good God. He, a God who heals and delivers and brings life. Do I understand why it uh, all ha- doesn't happen always? I don't. I don't understand it. But it doesn't change who God is just because I don't understand it, right? Number two, sanctification through sickness doesn't seem to be a scriptural view at all. Uh, Number three, suffering has value. Sickness doesn't. Uh, Sickness isn't a cross to bear, right? Nor a test of character, although God will use all things to strengthen us. We do admit that. And number five, rarely sickness does come as an impetus to deal with sin in God's people. We understand that. But also it seems to come with a promise of healing and there's no indication that God has any pleasure in doing that. Do I have any pleasure in punishing my children? No, I don't. It's not like I'm like, oh, I can't wait till they do something bad. I'm going to get them. Like I, don't, like, I don't want that. No, no, that's a sadistic dad, right? I imagine there are, are people out there in the world like that, but not me, right? And number six, an active, uh, an interactive, I should say, powerful God who heals and delivers validates our message of grace. I remember being in Indonesia, and I've told you this story once or twice, and if I went back to Indonesia, man, my ministry would be much different. But I was young at the time, and I had really grown up in a church that never practiced these things and all stuff. And right across the street from my house, there was this huge tent they put up, and they had all these six dukuns, six witch, witch doctors, were in there healing, quote-unquote, healing people. And I figured out pretty quickly that they were charlatans, that they had they had hauled these people in from like six hours away with them and told them to act like they couldn't walk and then they would they would make them drink this little potion and all this kind of stuff and then these people would get up and walk but it didn't matter people knew that didn't matter they still believed it and i'm thinking man oh man you know i i felt powerless i felt powerless in that whole thing so next week, we're going to look at our second theological roadblock to our understanding of God as in, interactive in our affairs. And I, that's really what this is about, that God is interactive in the world that we live in, that he cares about our physical bodies, that he cares about us as people. Um, and, and that one is divine deter- determinism. And you're probably going to be left with more questions than answers. That's okay. Questions are great. We'll get to them as best we can, but you know we probably will not be able to answer all of them to total satisfaction either. But as we clear out the weeds of theological roadblocks and we look into this stuff, as we prepare ourselves for the, uh, the prayer conference coming up, I'm praying that it will open up the way uh, to cultivating an understanding of the Holy Spirit's power in our lives even further. That will take us farther into the life of the Spirit. That going beyond uh, the past work of Christ and into um, sort of the... the, the the power-filled work of the Spirit in our lives right now. And, and I, I want to avoid some unhealthy focus on healing ministries. That's not my goal. But a, but a, but, um, but a focus on the living Christ who's interactive in the world right now is my goal, right? 
through his word and his spirit to become more natural in our in how we live out our relationship with with the holy spirit and how we rely on him in faith and how we see the world and see these things as god sees them and that's really our goal for this let me pray for us father we thank you uh, for shorter sermons <laughs> amen um we, we ask that you would bless our minds, our hearts and minds with your teaching. We, bless that you, we ask that you would bless us with your leading. We ask that we would think hard on these things, that we would delve into the scriptures ourselves, that we would read these stories and, and chew on them and swallow them and let them nourish us. We pray, Father God, that you would give us eyes to see through our cultural captivity, through the, the way the world sees things, or maybe even through the way our subculture of Christianity has saw things in the past and in our past experiences. We pray that you would, you would wipe all that slate clean and that you would write newly on there what you, exactly what you would have to say to us. That anything that I've said that is off base or wrong you would wipe away and you would you would write your truth on there and father we come to your table tonight or this morning and we ask that you would remind us of what that means how we come before you and we celebrate your death and your resurrection how you stood in that upper room with those people that were following you And you said, this is my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. This is my body. As you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. And I'm not sure they knew exactly what was going on at that moment, Father. But we do now and we celebrate it. We celebrate it together. So we ask that you would clean our hearts, that we would be confessional before we come to this table and that we would open our hearts to your transformational work in our lives.